Well, hello everyone and uh, happy Thanksgiving. This is a precious opportunity to do formally and collectively that which we need to do individually every moment of our lives. That is um, to bring our thanks and gratitude to our amazing God who uh, created us and cares for us every day of our lives. The God who has placed us by birth or migration in this beautiful land of uh, relative peace, safety, and plenty. And in doing so, we want to thank God for the land on which we now stand and so freely worship, and to thank the Odenoshoni and Adinishabe nations to whom this beautiful land belongs. Today's sermon is based on Psalm 131. Trevor had actually asked me to speak on this psalm, knowing that it's certainly one of the most favorite, my most favorite Bible passages. But you know how it is when, when one's offered to speak on a specific scripture passage like uh, humility or courage. We figured it's because we must be quite good at whatever the passage covers, when in fact we may have been asked because we needed a passage advice the most. And without a doubt, that's what Psalm 131 is for me. It's a yearning, an aspiration, and in many ways, the opposite of where I find myself often. I do like this psalm because it's so short, <laughs> just three verses. But don't be fooled by the brevity. Charles Spurgeon famously quoted as saying in reference to this psalm that it is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. And God knows I'm a very slow learner. Just to get a bit of context before we dive in, the psalm belongs to the series of 15 psalms from number 120 to 134 called the Songs of Ascent. The ascent refers either to the ascent from the plains of Israel to the city of Jerusalem, which is always perched on the hills, or possibly to the exactly 15 steps that existed in the temple from the court of women to the court of Israel. Or maybe it refers to both. These psalms are also called the pilgrim psalms. Um, and I must give Trevor credit for timing this series to co coincide with the last of the three Jewish pilgrim holidays, the festival of Sukkot, or tabernacles, which was celebrated this year just two weeks ago. So we come to this text as pilgrims on a spiritual journey, asking, what is the next session in this fall semester of the so-called Ascent School for Spiritual Formation. The structure of the psalm is quite simple. Three verses, which include a negation, an affirmation, and finally, an exhortation. I call Psalm 131 the introvert psalm. The focus and starting point for each verse is an inner attitude, with only the consequence of it being, as we'll see, a certain behavior. Most importantly, the style of the psalm is extremely personal. David wrote it in the direct first person, and it is meant to be interpreted equally personally. That's how I feel I must interpret it too, not as some lesson for you out there, but first and foremost, for me right here. And my hope is that if we will all read it and apply it equally personally, the Spirit of God will cause our inner changes and outer behaviors to reflect increasingly the heart of God. So let's start with, with verse 1. 
The psalmist starts with a negation of pride, of self-worth, of arrogance. Right from the beginning, don't miss the powerful imagery of the style. The two action words that start the psalm are both about lifting up in keeping with the ascent or walk up to the Jerusalem. But don't be misled by this beautiful figure of speech. This is not a sort of lift up your hearts type lifting up, like in the classic Anglican hymn, where it's clear right away afterwards that it's talking about lifting up to the Lord. This ascent that David talks about is of self rather than to God. The placing of our pride above all else. Other translations like the NIV render it directly as these verbs as being proud or haughty. Right, don't be proud, don't be haughty. It's a bit like being told, be more humble, please. Welcome to the story of my life. How on earth do I do that? So David immediately helps us by making his statement practical and specific, focusing on a behavior that reflects this negative attitude, a concern with great matters. We get a sense for that for David, this was quite personal, possibly his Achilles heel, his vulnerability, his entrance point into pride. So what are these great matters? David, who had an entire kingdom to rule, might have derived pride out of his power, his riches, or his many wives and concubines. For us, such great matters might be pet political or sports debates, or, of course, the most recent flavor born out of the, of the, of the pandemic, vaccine debates, virus transmission debates, and why we would have handled the whole crisis much better than Fauci. For many Bible Christians, these great matters might be theological debates between different denominations, judgments on who's a Christian and who's not, and being theologically correct, always able to spot the slightest deviation in other people's faith. You see, I know these excesses and the pride of my peers or brothers and sisters in the church very well. Because if I am to be honest, my likeliest and most frequent slip, or should I say tumble, into pride is also through my knowledge, my analytical abilities, my scientific and research understanding, my tech savviness, even my kitchen Hebrew and Greek sprinkled in a sermon just to show off. For others of us, the temptation to pride might come through our physical looks or Instagram profile, our health, or at least our perfect health consciousness, our youthfulness, our possessions, all the ways we elevate our own self. In a past era, the list might have included our ancestors and therefore our whiteness, the mark of our superiority and triumphalism. So bottom line, the, the psalmist tells us that pride and self-reliance are to be frowned upon. And why? Oh, we know the answer. Because God, of course, abhors the proud, as the scripture tells us in multiple places, like Psalm 138, verse 6, Proverbs 6, 17, and 8, 13, Jeremiah 50, 31. But David doesn't seem to offer this obvious response. What does he do instead? Well, he chooses affirmation rather than negation. 
painting for us in the positive what the absence of pride might look like. A total dependence on God to provide. Like, and here's the image painted, like that of a child on its mother. But it's not any child. For a breastfed baby is hardly aware of their total dependence, having milk available at a whim. No, it's a weaned child. One who no longer receives mother's milk anytime they ask for it. Keep in mind, please, that in David's times, a child would be weaned between the ages of two and three, not six months like in contemporary society. This child is free to move about and explore, but is keenly aware of her dependence and knows that the feeding schedule is not under her control, but the, her parents. The weaned child learns that he has to wait for food, yet finds rest in the assurance of provisions even when food is not in front of his eyes. Spurgeon said, weaning was one of the first real troubles that we met with, with after we came into the world. And it was at a time, a, a very terrible one to our little hearts. We got over it somehow or another. The weaned child rests exactly because she got over the myth of being at the center of life, of the universe, and served by all, and has entered the reality of broken life, where there's waiting and need and pain. But the entire broken reality is permeated by the pervasive love of a parent who cares and provides. For me, being like a weaned child means realizing on what a shaky foundation my pride rests. What a small part of life is truly under my own control. How unpredictable tomorrow can be. And how little in the final analysis do all my smarts and skills and titles really mean. Being like a weaned child for me ultimately means coming to terms with my own fragility. And I'm not referring here to my white fragility, my great discomfort and unease when faced with racial color and gender inequities all around me. I'm talking about the general brokenness and vulnerability of being human, powerless against most of what happens around me, and helpless without God and without my friends, family, and allies. I regularly face my physical fragility as a young hexagenarian whose knee joint cartilage has just but disappeared. I face my emotional fragility every time I gingerly open the can of worms of my own early childhood trauma, seemingly rearing its ugly head each day. I face my, sp my spiritual fragility all those times when I become defensive of my little faith convictions and retreat in my bubble of like-minded friends, desperately trying to convince others that my point of view is the correct one and helping God, apparently, win some argument. But in the very midst of this anxious existential fragility, Psalm 131 tells me to, well, to chill, to still and quiet my soul, to learn from little kids how to rest in my brokenness, powerlessness, and even helplessness in the loving arms of my parents who is theologically referred to as my Abba Father, 
or daddy who is here with me. And he is not just my father in heaven. He is my Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides for all my needs. And I mean all. My heart rests because, in Augustine's words, our hearts are restless till they rest in you. And this leads us to the third and last verse of the psalm, the exhortation. While the object of this exhortation is obvious, dependence on God and hope in God, the subject changes at this point from the individual to the community, from me to us. David reminds us that faith, like love, cannot exist in isolation. In the words of one of my favorite African proverbs, I am because we are. My soul will be truly stilled and quieted when your soul will be stilled too, and yours, and yours. And then together we will form the community of faith, which is both healing to those within it and a witness of love to those outside. One final thought on this psalm. Pastor Trevor recently explained to us that like the other ascent psalms, Psalm 31 is a psalm of movement. Notice the many movements in the psalm. The move from pride to humility and love. A movement not motivated by fear of judgment because God abhors the proud, but simply motivated by his love. A move from faith, defined in the words of Brian McLaren as assenting to a set of beliefs, to faith as the practice of love. The move from right behavior to right heart, or from doing to being, and ultimately a move from self-worth to God-worth and from fear to love. I have made this exposition of Psalm 131 very transparent and personal because that's apparently how the Psalms are all about what the Psalms are all about. And if that is so, just like I appropriated the Psalm, you too can. Maybe you might be able to. If you're ready for this bold exercise, I encourage you to think about the negation, affirmation, and exhortation of the Psalm. What are the sources of pride in your life? The areas where you think of yourself more highly than others? What would it look like for you, for us, to replace that pride with a recognition of personal brokenness, powerlessness, and fragility? Could you come out like that in full assurance, like a weaned child, secure in knowing that God, our loving parent, would provide for you? And how would such a personal coming out and surrender play out in our faith community? How would it impact it? Henry Nouwen, uh, my favorite theologian, said, insofar as we dare to, to be baptized in powerlessness, we are plunged right into the heart of God's endless mercy. May we, individually and collectively, have the courage to take this plunge and allow our souls to be quieted and calm like a weaned child.
in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.